Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Playsheet Podcast. I'm Charles, and here always with me is my friend Joe. Howdy. We're here to bring you a breakdown of last week's NFL action and give you all the upcoming news and a look ahead to the predictions of the upcoming game week. In this week's episode, we're going to take a closer look at the Ravens losing their grasp on playoff football, a broken burrow, two are getting benched, and the Las Vegas showdown. So without further ado, we'll jump straight into it. So to take us into our first game then, Joe, we should probably be a little bit up front. Uh, I think the first at least five games we're talking about today, you predicted all incorrect. I predicted at least four of those five incorrect. So uh, it was certainly a week for upsets. Why are you taking the sample size as the first five and saying, well, I got one right? If you take the first six, then I got one right as well, Chaz, and you got five wrong. So, you know, let's... Uh... Okay, but if we take the first seven, that's another one you got wrong, Joe. So, how, I mean, how much do you want to extend this sample size? <laughs> Why don't we not pick selective sample sizes and just say it wasn't the best selection for either of us? <laughs> but I feel I called that out quite fairly. Neither of us had a great start to this. A lot of wrong calls potentially one of the biggest upsets we have here Seahawks 28 Cardinals 21 the Seahawks found a defense what happened Joe I wouldn't call this a huge upset the Seahawks D has been terrible it has been really bad but I think their offense did a little bit more to take the pressure off Russell Wilson's shoulders they had a better game from Hyde they ran the ball more than they passed it so they were just putting less pressure on him the game was more balanced And when it mattered, the D didn't do much. It wasn't like the D came in with any huge plays which turned the tide of the game. All right, Dunlap got the last sack to close the game out. But I think that all the D did was get three sacks. There was no turnovers, there was no fumbles, no interceptions. No, but there was a limitation on yards. I mean, they held Murray to just 89 passing yards in the opening half. This is a team that could not stop the air yards for love nor money. And suddenly they're holding Murray and DeAndre Hopkins to 89 and a half. They turned it on. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Murray still ended up with 269 yards and two touchdowns. It wasn't like Murray was shut out. I'd say that they were more effective against the rushing attack. Arizona, lest we forget, is the best rushing attack in the league. They finished up with only 57 yards, averaging 3.2. So... More than anything, it was them being able to shut down a run, which I think was key to them winning the game rather than them shutting down the pass. Because, you know, all right, first half, 89 yards, well, then they gave up, what, 180 yards in the second half. So it wasn't like it was a perfect secondary performance from the Seahawks. No, by no means. But I think their defense looked a lot more capable than I'd say it has done any week leading up until this point. I don't even know whether I'd say that right. What I'd just say is it felt like they were more up for it. If you look at a few plays, it's just small things, right? There was there was one play where uh, Murray lobbed out a pass. The Cardinals got first down. But when the cornerback made the tackle, lifted the receiver off his feet and drove him back about five or six yards, it was just these kind of hustle plays where it showed that they were up for it, that they wanted it. The D just looked a little bit more ready. The D didn't win this game. No turnovers. They still gave away 257 passing yards. Yes, they were good against a run. But they were just satisfactory. I'd go as far as saying that they played a satisfactory game, which then when you have Russell Wilson, who's playing reasonably well, and the rushing attack is playing very well, 165 yards during a game, that's enough. And that's all we've said about the Seahawks team. As long as their D plays to be just enough, the offense is good enough to carry them the rest of the way. Yeah, and I mean, the Cardinals didn't help themselves. 
I think they committed 10 penalties, four of which were false starts. There were a lot of flags, I would say that. And you're right, yeah, they didn't help themselves at all. 10 penalties, seeding 115 yards. That is pretty bad. And what did you think about the run game then? You've just mentioned that they've got one of the best running records in the league, which was something that I wasn't aware of. Every week that I kind of tune into the Cardinals, the run game doesn't seem to be quite clicking. Do you think that's fair or not? No, I don't think it is, as long as you consider Murray as part of a rushing attack. It doesn't click if you look at it purely from a kind of stance of fantasy perspective of, oh, what has Drake done this week? What has Edmonds done this week? Oh, yeah, they finished up with 60, 70 yards again. You've got two running backs there who are both getting that amount of yardage kind of week in, week out. I mean, you've got Murray slapping another 50, 60 yards on. As a kind of free-headed attack between the three of them, they do get an awful lot of yards. And the Arizona rushing attack, it's one of the best in the league. And it was basically shut down. Kyler Murray, five carries for 15 yards. I've not got the stats up in front of me, but I would imagine that's probably a season low or near a season low for him. Kenyon Drake, 11 carries, 29 yards. Now, he's had games where he's not been very efficient, but I mean, that's really not efficient. 2.6 yards a carry. Okay, he ended up with a touchdown, but that touchdown was, I mean, borderline. He fumbled that basically on the plane, and that could very well be a fumble for a loss, as much as that is a uh, touchdown that he scored. So the Seattle D did a great job against the uh, run there, whereas on the other hand, they had 31 attempts, 165 yards, 5.3 yards a carry, great efficiency capped off by a Carlos Hyde touchdown. That's where the game, I feel, was won and lost in the two teams rushing. Yeah, and I suppose taking into account Kyler Murray's runs as well is a really important factor of that. When I'm looking at this, you know, I am typically looking at Chase Edmonds and Kenyon Drake, and that's a really good point. Obviously, you've got to take into account the rushing yards that the quarterback's generating as well, because for every run or scramble that he does, he's taking that away from someone like Kenyon or someone like Edmonds. So. Absolutely. So most games, like I said, you can probably whack another 40, 50 yards on that uh, Kyler Murray's getting. Yeah. Right. Taking us next then into Titans-Ravens. In fairness, we both called this one close. We thought it was going to be a close game. Could have gone either way. We backed the wrong horse on this one. It went to overtime. Titans pulled it out of the bag. What was your view on this one, Joe? Really important game in the playoff picture. I mean, would you believe at this stage now, the Ravens sit third in the AFC North and they're currently outside of the playoffs. They sit eighth. And they're not on a terrible record. They're on 6-4. They're on 6-4. But I mean, there's a lot of teams on 6-4 right now in the AFC. Yeah, and that's the issue. That is the issue. It does definitely seem that the AFC is a far more competitive conference this year. Like we said many times, there's inconsistency in all of the big teams in the NFC. The AFC has a lot of teams who are just on the money, you know, your Steelers, your Chiefs, and then a lot of teams who are just floating around that 6 4 7 3 mark. Very competitive. Every game is important from a head to head perspective when it comes to the playoff rankings at the end of the year. And this game is going to have big repercussions. The Ravens are clearly on a slump. They've now lost more games this season than they lost last year, finished with a 13 3 record last year, and out 6 4. And it doesn't get any better for them. Dobbins and Ingram are on the COVID list. Ravens are playing Thursday, which doesn't give them enough time to get off the COVID list. So for a team that relies on the run so heavily, they'll be without their two running backs on Thursday night against the Steelers. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to hurt hard. 
we've mentioned this quite a bit, so I don't want to dwell on it too much, but it was another case of Lamar Jackson just not looking anywhere near the quarterback that we're used to seeing from his MVP season last year. No, he certainly wasn't. And we've looked at the reasons for this previously, so again, we won't kind of stomp over it. But defences have adjusted. And this is now where we're going to really see what he's all about. Can he adjust back? And, you know, it's as much, you know, harbour as well to come up with the plays. But they have to get back on top of those defences now. They had a season where they were kind of coming out with plays that no one was expecting. They were using lots of RPOs. They were doing lots of that kind of stuff. And it was, you know, getting defences on the back foot. Well, defences have adjusted. This is a game of adjustments. They have adjusted. Now, how are you going to adjust to overtake them? And at the minute, they aren't making those adjustments. I think that Jackson is flustered with the comments that he's made in the press about defences knowing what he's doing. He's clearly not comfortable there. Look at his passing performance in this game. Ravens had a total of 186 yards. 96 of those were to Mark Andrews, a tight end. Des Bryant led all receivers. Des Bryant. Des Bryant led all receivers with 28 yards. And you're not going to win games against mediocre competition, let alone a decent side like the Titans with a performance like that. And I think that's my concern now with Marshall Yander retired and Johnny Stanley out. Jackson doesn't have that protection that he probably needs to give himself the time to find a different way around the troubles he's facing at the moment. And my concern is they fall into the Titans. They'll probably fall again to the Steelers next week. And we yep. discuss, you know, they only need to lose one more game on top of that, potentially, and they could find themselves outside of the playoffs. Well, they've got a huge game coming up. Let's say for argument's sake, they lose against the Steelers, which isn't a given. This is still an OK Raven side. They're not suddenly a garbage side. So let's just say for argument's sake, they lose that game against the Steelers. They're 6-5. and five. They've got a huge game then against the Browns. And like I said, the Browns are already in front of them in the AFC North. You lose that game against the Browns and you are categorically finishing third in the AFC North and it's a long way back to the playoffs then. So Mark Ingram continued to be inefficient in this game. He went two for two in the end. But another great game from J.K. Dobbins. Yeah, what can you say really? He's looking like a decent rookie. He's had to, you know, take his time behind Gus Edwards and behind Mark Ingram. Mark Ingram is a veteran now. He's getting expensive for what he's producing. He's had a good career. He was great at the Saints. He was great in his first season at Baltimore. But I think that Dobbins is definitely the heir apparent there. And I think it's only a matter of time before he takes more and more carries. Yeah. Finally, then, before we move on, what was your take on the Titans standing on the center logo before the game? Because there's been a bit of chat around that. I think that something has been made out of this when nothing was happening. I think they were perfectly entitled to stand there. They were having a huddle before they were going back into the locker room. And I think that is literally all they were doing. I mean, this is my view as well, which is why I'm glad you've said that, because I thought they just had limp before the game. I don't know how deliberate it was that they were on that centre logo. There was nothing to it. I think that if you look at the reaction of AJ Brown, it will tell you everything you need. They were just thinking like, you know, WTF, why is he getting so angry about us? They were literally just having a huddle. And I think that probably there was perhaps an attempt to manufacture a little bit of hustle, a little bit of bad blood to get the team up for that game. And that's my view. Yeah, I agree. Right, let's move on then to XFL superstar Philip Walker bagging not only his first start in the NFL, but also his first win. What about that, Joe? Yeah, so PJ Walker, look, straight out, well done to him. 
he didn't play excellent though. Can we just be honest about that? He didn't have a great game. I mean, he threw a TD and the TD that he threw was to blown coverage. The two interceptions he threw were both interceptions into the end zone. They were passes that he should have never have made. So if you're only getting field goals from him, he threw away six points there. I think the bigger story here isn't PJ Walker. It's just how bad the Lions O was. It was absolutely shocking. You know, fair play to the Panthers defense who were missing a few pieces. They didn't even allow Prater to get a field goal. The Lions were held to nothing. Well, you say didn't allow Prater to get a field goal. The field goal attempt that Prater made, he just did a hideous hook to it. Like if that was a golf shot, it would be out of bounds and you'd be taking a penalty for it. That was just a terrible kick from Prater. Yeah, but it was the only opportunity they allowed him to take in the game. No, true. I think that the cause of a lot of this, the Lions offensive line was hideous. Now, we've mentioned them a few times on the show. I think that in week two or three, we mentioned how bad they were. The week after, we highlighted that they gave up no sacks and then we kind of left it alone. The O-line gave up five sacks and I think that someone who needs to take a look at themselves this week was Taylor Decker playing left tackle. Now, this is a guy who at one point this season had an 11-month run where he'd been sackless, where he'd been perfect. He gave up two sacks on Sunday and they were pretty bad sacks that he gave up. The Lions O-line was terrible. It wasn't just the sacks they were giving up. There were some really bad snaps that Stafford had to go and deal with. Basically, all the trouble I think that the Lions O had stemmed from their O-line in this game. And yeah, Stafford might have had a little bit of a dodgy fun, but I don't think that was a factor. Look at the O-line. It was bad. So, I mean, the Panthers were down Christian McCaffrey, left tackle Russell Okung, and arguably their best cover corner in Dante Jackson. So to not put up a single point is an embarrassing loss for Matt Patricia. Now, you've said a few times on this podcast that he's on the hot seat. How much hotter do you think it needs to get before there's talk about him losing his job here? I slightly feel a little bit, Charles. That's dead man walking. <laughs> <laughs> you see, he's walking through that prison corridor and it's only a matter of time before he gets strapped into the chair. Realistically, the Vikings are a garbage can on fire this season. They're probably still going to end up third and the Lions are still going to end up below them. Lions are going to come bottom of the NFC North. I just don't really see any situation where Patricia can keep his job. This is his third season now, I think, third season. Yeah. And like we mentioned last week, he's a defensive coordinator becoming a head coach. So if there's one thing he should be straightening out, it's for D. Going into this game, the last three games... I had a few stats to kind of back me up and saying how their offense has been decent. Decent enough, they've scored 71 points in the last three games. The last three games before this Panthers game, though, they'd conceded 102 points. That's, you know, 34 points a game they'd conceded going into this Panthers game. Their D is really bad, and it's only because there's been some Ds which have been historically bad this season. I'm talking Seahawks, I'm talking Atlanta, that no one's really putting as much emphasis on how bad this Lions D are but they are really, really bad. And they will win nothing until this D is sorted. And if Patricia is sitting there and he's happy with what he's achieved with this D in three years, there's been personnel decisions they've made, players they've let go in the off-season, players they've traded away, that leave real big question marks over the management of this team. I think it's a matter of time now. I can't see Patricia being in charge come week one, 2021. Do you think he'll go before the end of this season? I think that often happens, doesn't it? A lot of coaches seem to get sacked, you know, kind of week 14, week 15. They do, don't they? Yeah. 
Yeah, it seems to be kind of a time when a lot of GMs make their move. I can see it happening week 14, week 15, especially if they lose to the Vikings again, which will almost guarantee that they'll finish bottom of the NFC North. I just want to bring something up on the Panthers. Just the ascendancy of Curtis Samuel. For all wide receivers, and I'm saying wide receivers here, this is the important thing because running backs and tight ends are slightly different because it's easier catches they make. But for all wide receivers with at least 50 yards, Curtis Samuel has the highest catch rate. His catch rate is 84%. And he's actually way above anyone else. The next closest wide receiver is Tyler Boyd with 79.3. This is wide receivers with over 50 targets, you know, for a big enough sample size. But Curtis Samuel is now one of the safest pairs of hands in the National Football League. And I mean, part of the reason why PJ Walker could come in and feel so comfortable was because he had a player like Curtis Samuel who he could just dump the ball off and throw it up to him and know that, you know, there's an 84% chance he's going to catch it come what may. So, next game, Eagles 17, Browns 22. What have you got on this one, Charles? I mean, it felt like a Giants-Washington game, if I'm being honest. It basically came down to who can make the least mistakes, and it turned out to be the Browns, just. I mean, there were missed open touchdowns, a red zone fumble, a strip sack, a pick six. And actually, the pick six were the only points that were scored in the first half. It was just a calamity of errors. Neither team seemed to want to score. Both quarterbacks looked bad. And, you know, I think for the most part, Browns had the better defence. And that's pretty much what it came down to at the end of the day. So you enjoyed the game then? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't beautiful. Let's put it that way. Yeah, this was real old school Kevin Stefanski style football we saw from the Browns here. They had 40 rush attempts against only 22 passing attempts. And Mayfield actually only connected on 12 passes. So only 12 completed passes against 40 rushes. The rushing wasn't efficient though. They have 40 carries, 137 yards. That's 3.4 yards a carry. You take away that long run that Nick Chubb had for 54 yards. And you're starting to look, you know, somewhere around two yards a carry. Absolutely, yeah. Wide receivers only accounted for 69 of Philadelphia's receiving yards. And of those 69, Rager had 52. I mean, there's no wide receivers in Philadelphia. Asking questions about the wide receivers. You don't have a pad of paper long enough to write down all the questions you want to ask the Philadelphia Eagles. But it was just, um, I suppose it was a game where I felt largely underwhelmed you know I expect the Eagles to come into this and not play well because they haven't played well consistently now for for a bunch of games I was maybe hoping that the Browns would show a bit more and hey look you know they did enough to win the game which at the end of the day is all you have to do but it wasn't impressive certainly from a quarterback and a throwing perspective and yes they ran a lot but they were largely inefficient I think that you summed it up pretty well, really, where you said it was just waiting for the mistakes that Philadelphia were making. Cleveland created nothing, really. It was just waiting for those Carson Wentz mistakes to happen. Two interceptions, sacked five times. He's going to give you stuff. Yeah. So I think the real test is going to be that Ravens game, isn't it? We'll see if that works against a team less likely to make mistakes, but they're on the decline, so you never know. There's just so much pressure on that Ravens team going into this game. We're assuming they lose to the Steelers. If they beat the Steelers, it's a slightly different story. Yeah. Do you think that the Browns will still be in playoff contention come the end of the season, Charles? They're 7-3 right now. I personally don't. 
I think they've had some nice early matchups. I think that what we're seeing from the Browns is not a lot different from what we've seen in other years. I think Mayfield is still not the right quarterback for them. Stefanski is the right person to have. That style of play suits the Browns and they'll be able to grind out the odds an impressive win from time to time. It's the right style of football for them, but I still don't think they've got enough in the passing game to make them a, a playoff team. Okay, well, like I said, they're 7-3 now, six games left. Of those six games, three of them are against the Jaguars, the Giants and the Jets. That's not bad. <laughs> now, admittedly, the other three are against the Titans, the Ravens and the Steelers. But, you know, say they do just win one of those other games, say they sneak it against the Ravens, say they pull an upset against the Titans, finishing 4-2, that puts them at 11-5 of the season and almost certainly playoffs. Yeah, yeah, very true. So, interesting to see what the Browns can do, but I think this is their best shot of playoff football for a long time. God, those fans will be happy, won't they? (laughs) They won't know what to do with themselves. That's so true. (laughs) They probably have all these plans for like January that they normally have and they have to like cancel their, you know, annual January traditions <laughs> of going and seeing family and all of these kind of things. Anyway, let's stop, uh, let's stop mocking the Browns. Let's move on. Patriots 20, Texans 27. What do you got on this one? Who's supposed to win anymore, Joe? This week has absolutely thrown me for a loop. There were teams in there that you'd think were a sure thing and... A Patriots team with a good run room against a two-win Texans team that can't defend the run to save their lives. I don't know how the Texans came out of this with a win. Well, I do. Watson. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, 100% of it. And I think that you've nailed exactly what I was going to say in that the probably biggest shock out of all of this, aside from the momentum shifting with teams winning that are now losing and all of that, the biggest shock is that if it's New England rushing attack that had a great game against the Ravens last week with Harris kind of eating up the yardage. Houston rushing D that has been the butt of many of our jokes this season only ships 86 yards on 24 carries from New England and average of 3.6. The Houston rush D looked good. The biggest rush they gave up was 11 yards from Damier Bird. And that was on a jet sweep, I think. Like, Houston defended the run. What's going on? I know, exactly. It's absolutely bonkers. And conversely, the Patriots' defence looked shocking. I mean, they allowed Cooks to go four for 85 yards and Fuller got six balls for 80 yards. To be giving both of those wide receivers big yardage, it was surprising to see, to be honest. I think this kind of slightly ties into the narrative we've had all season on this Houston team, though, that there isn't a wide receiver one. They're a team of wide receiver twos. And... It kind of means sometimes in games like this, they can all get a decent share. Well, yeah, but not on a great deal of receptions. I mean, when you look at Cooks and Fuller, they combined for 10 balls. That's all they took down in the end. They just got big yardage off the back of it. Yeah, no wide receiver had more than eight targets. Yeah, which seems strange, but there you go. It went against the runner play. I don't really have much of an explanation for it outside of the fact that as we've just discussed, Texans run D showed up, Patriots coverage went to pot and, you know, Watson went off. The Patriots didn't have an answer for him. It was one of those games that didn't go according to plan. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to both of these teams moving forward because 
I suppose the shame of it for the Patriots is they won this game and they're still not totally out of it. I kind of feel with this loss, it might be one too many for them now. That does seem how it feels. This was an opportunity this week, especially with the Dolphins having another shock loss. They could have gone 5-5, one game behind the Dolphins, been right in the mixer still. They've got some tough matchups coming. This is probably it for them. This is the first time they've had six losses since 2009, and this could well be the first time they don't make the playoffs since 2008. So it will be a strange January without New England playing. Okay, so we're through our first five games. We get onto the sixth game, Joe, and finally there's a team you can rely on. The Steelers 27, Jaguars 3. I knew we could count on one of them to come in, Joe. Steelers 27, Jaguars 3. I don't think there's really too much to say on this game. Jaguars clearly don't really have too much consideration for Jake Luton. They threw him out there and asked him to throw the ball 37 times against the Steelers defense. It was only going to go one way and that's the way it went. He was intercepted four times, had a pass rating of 15.8. Minka Fitzpatrick and Terrell Edmonds, two interceptions each. They took a whooping really and the Steelers never really got out of second gear. They scored, I think, 17 points in the second quarter. Then we're just happy to sit back. And I mean, that's the good thing about playing for a team with a balanced offense and defense. Because to begin the game, the Steelers offense and Big Ben in particular, they looked a little bit shaky. Yeah, yeah, they were. They gave up those three points to the Jags. But then the Steelers D comes up big. And sometimes that's all the boost you need to perform. And the Steelers didn't look back after that. No, you're absolutely right there. Someone who did come up big, Deontay Johnson, big day, 12 receptions, 111 yards. And Claypool, just worth mentioning, he's the first wide receiver in the Super Bowl era to have at least 10 touchdowns in his first 10 games. So looks like he's on for an impressive career. I think he's got to be in the conversation for offensive rookie of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And then I suppose finally, the last good thing to see is that James Conner got to stretch his legs again. It's been a while since we've seen him put up yardage against the team. Yeah, and he had a few decent chunky plays. Of course, it's against the Jags, but it might be the kind of game that he needs to get kick-started again and hopefully he can keep it up moving forward. Yeah, you kind of raise a good point here, Charles. This Steelers team, it was never in doubt. They were 17-3 up at the half. I mean, Jacksonville never scored again after getting a field goal in the first quarter. Yet still, Roethlisberger ended up with more pass completions, let alone pass attempts, than they had rushing attempts. So they rushed the ball 27 times and been for it 46 times. They still feel very much like a team that isn't relying on a run to pick up first downs and grab a ball out. Connor still only ended up with 13 carries. Yes, he was efficient at 6.8 yards a carry, but the team still doesn't seem to be going there. Why do you think that is? I don't know whether it's just a if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. They're a team that's now 10-0. and 0. I think they're just scared to change anything. I think they're scared to even sit back and rely on the run game because they just don't want to give up that perfect record just yet. It just kind of feels like such a weird way to kind of run out games though. Like you're 17-3 up at the half. You're still 17-3 up at the end of the third quarter. Why even put the ball in like Roethlisberger's hands where he is a quarterback who has just taken a lot of hits for his career, let alone this season. He hurt an arm, hurt the other arm, hurt a knee, hurt the other knee. 
Why keep putting the ball in his hands? Why not just let Benny Snell Jr. and James Connor run the ball and just grind the ball out? And even if they don't make first down every time, they'll still make first down enough for this team to still win comfortably. If Roethlisberger was hit by a sack in the fourth quarter when they're 27-3 up, what's the point of that? You're going to turn around then and, and think that was a real stupid, dumb thing to do. Yeah, one to watch out for, I suppose. My theory is they just don't want to rock the apple cart at the moment because they're having the best season of their lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. But if Roethlisberger gets injured in the fourth quarter because they were 30 points up and they didn't need to have him passing the ball, don't say I didn't warn you. Well, we're coming on to one of those games in a bit. But before we get there, let's talk Saints 24, Falcons 9. So actually, Hill started, which was something that when we were recording this last week, neither of us really saw coming. No. But it actually worked out quite well for them. You know, he took a sack on third and one because he held on to the ball for forever. Yeah. And he was lucky to have an interception dropped. But after that, he did a really good job of progressively moving it down the field and getting scores. I think it was very much a kind of game management performance from Taysom Hill. He wasn't asked to do too much. What he was asked to do, he did relatively well, like you said. And then the players around him, the strong defence for New Orleans, and then the players they have in a run game, obviously Kamara, did all the rest. He led the team in rushing yards, which people joked about before the game, but he did. 10 carries, 51 yards, where Kamara had 13 for 45, Latavius Murray had 12 for 49. It was efficient. They got what they needed to do. This was a game that they could have easily slipped up on. They're now 8-2. They march on, and they're still right up there, I think, first seed in the NFC Conference. But it's funny, really, isn't it? Because the game that you've just described Hill having is the game that we were saying last week that Jameis Winston, we need to see from him. Yes. You know, we were saying if he does start, the way he proves himself is with maturity, is by sensibly allowing his teammates to do the work for him. And obviously the Saints believe that Hill is their guy to do that over Jameis, which is quite an interesting statement. Yeah. And, you know, in fairness to Jameis Winston, Taysom Hill has been with the Saints for longer. He's been there for a few years now. He knows the playbook more. So there is that. But I think you are right. I think they clearly trust him more. They trust him to just not make the mistakes, which Winston is just, unfortunately, it's what he's known for. And it's a shame for Winston that he didn't get to showcase that he's maybe improved that part of his game, that he's maybe, you know, ironed out those creases. But judging by the performance which you've seen from Hill, he's certainly not going to get a chance next week because they'll run with Hill for at least another two weeks, I think. Do you think there might ever be a situation where you have different quarterbacks for different types of games? So a game where the Saints feel that they might have to go toe-to-toe offensively, they might put Jameis Winston out because they know he can pull off those plays, but the games that require a bit more of a game management and they just need to not mess up, they'll put Hill out for? Or do you think they'll just stick with their preferred quarterback regardless? It's a really good question, and I think the problem we've got really is we're not going to get that answer in the next two games. If Breeze comes back within three weeks, which is the earliest he can come back, it means that Hill will face the Broncos next week and the Falcons once again a week after that. If Breeze is out for longer, ignore the Eagles games, but the week after that, 20th of December, the Saints are playing the Chiefs. Now, Breeze does have a bad injury. What was it, like 12 ribs that he broke? Something like that? Something ridiculous? 
12 ribs of collapsed lung. He basically got squeezed like a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> but he's cracked a lot of ribs. I think it's wishful thinking to think he'd be back after three weeks. So let's go to this Chiefs game. If you fall behind and you're two, three scores behind going into the second half, then I think that there is that temptation there. Why not get Winston out to air the ball? You don't know, but I would imagine that they will go with Hill for the majority, if not all the drives, until Breeze is back. Yeah. And then just to talk about the Falcons briefly, because we focused mostly on the Saints there. They were bad, weren't they? Yeah, they were. It was. We've seen this a few times from the Falcons so far this season. You know, their defense is always something that we pick up on. But occasionally, there'll be the odd game where the Falcons just cannot generate the points. I think yeah. you have to take your hat off to the Saints, D. It was very impressive all game long. Julio Jones being out for half the game certainly didn't help either. But that is a worrying factor that, you know, you can't just rely on Julio Jones. And this Falcons offense is more than Julio Jones. They've got enough capable receiving players that can get that yardage and get those scores for you. But it just wasn't clicking on Sunday. It really wasn't clicking. Like Matt Ryan barely threw above 50%. No touchdowns, two interceptions, a rating of 48.5. So that's an ugly stat line. And like you say... You can't just blame it all on Julio Jones not being around. You've got players like Ridley. You've got players like, you know, Gurley in the backfield for you. You've got Hayden Hurst, who didn't even make a catch. There's enough playmakers who are around that you can't blame it on Jones. Yeah. So another thing to watch out for, that's the problem with this Falcons team, isn't it? You don't know what will strike when. Will the offence crumble? Will the defence crumble? Will they both crumble? Or are they all going to magically come together in one of those rare moments and win a game? We'll find out this week. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out. Tune in next week. (laughs) Okay, I mean, let's move on to the last of the six o'clock games. We've got the Bengals at Washington. Bengals 9, Washington 20. I think it's only really one thing that we want to talk about here, Charles, isn't there? Yeah, and do you know what? It's one of those times where it doesn't pay to be right and you don't want to be yeah, right. Yeah, 100%. If there's one thing that I would not want to be right on in anything during the show, it is this. And I hate being right on this, but if there was one thing that I knew we were going to be right on, it's this. Yeah, I mean, we said it about three times, didn't we? We said it so much. And it's happened. And it's interesting, you know, because it's something that we talked about off air as well when you were talking about Trevor Lawrence and whether it's worth him staying in college for one more year because the reality is he ends up on a team like the Jets who have a similar O-line. Yeah. Getting picked by these last place teams is sometimes the worst place you can end up if you've got a promising looking career as a quarterback Joe Burrow last season had probably the best season of any college quarterback in the history of college football college football I remind you has been along for longer than the National Football League over a hundred years of college football he was a special player it's now two days after the game and it's been confirmed he's not just torn his ACL he's torn his MCL and he has serious structural damage in his knee This is a serious, serious injury. And you have got to look at the Bengals as being the absolute root cause of this. I just want to remind you, right? The Bengals have 12 million of cap space right now. They have AJ Green playing for them, who doesn't want to play for them, who's also sitting on about 18 million of cap room. 
They could have traded AJ Green to the Patriots and picked up a decent lineman. They could have targeted Jack Conklin. They could have targeted Brian Beluga. Many offensive linemen to give Joe Burrow a little bit of help and a little bit of protection. But they didn't. They didn't do any of those things. And despite all the warning signs being there in the first half of the season before the trade deadline, they didn't make any moves. And they were happy for Joe Burrow, a generational player like that, to sit behind that O-line. You have to look at this Bengals organisation and you have to point fingers for what they've allowed to happen here. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the rest of the game. It's a shame because, you know, it happened reasonably early on. Joe was doing quite well. He was 22 out of 34 for 203 yards and a touchdown. Whether the game would have been any different or not, I suppose is up for debate. But it's just a shame. It's an awful thing to witness. Let's move on to the next set of games then. So to lead us into the next set of games, let's start with Broncos 20, Dolphins 13, Joe. Broncos, full of surprises. Here's your accumulator buster right here. Forget about the Browns and Eagles. This is what I am certain has ruined a lot of people from last week. They just can't seem to make their mind up whether they want to be tough and gritty or if they want to be complete pushovers. And this was a tough and gritty day for the Broncos. Yeah, I mean, there were a few accumulator breakers this week, but this was probably the most surprising. You know, the way the Dolphins have been playing the last few weeks, it seemed almost certainty that they'd do this Broncos team over. They were making a great kind of run for the playoffs. That's all in doubt now in a very competitive AFC. A real bad game for the Dolphins. They didn't get a single sack on Drew Locke. After the defensive performance we've seen the last few weeks, very, very surprising. All they really came away with was an interception. But, you know, giving up 20 points to this Broncos team, which hasn't been all that on offense whatsoever, it's a disappointing day for them. Yeah, and I suppose my concern and my question, Joe, is, is this a bigger issue for the Miami Dolphins? Seeing the success that the Denver pass rush had against Miami, is that a bit of a blueprint for other teams facing a Tua-led Miami that all they need to do is bring the pass rush and they can shut him down to a certain degree? I don't necessarily think so, because we've seen Tua get out of some situations where he really should have been sacked, and he's shown himself to be quite elusive in the games that he's played so far. I mean, look, he got sacked six times against the Broncos, so he had a bad day of it. He was carrying a foot injury as well. There was that. It's never really an excuse. The reason he was benched was for his performance, not for his injury. Look, he's a rookie. This is, what, his third, fourth start? Rookies have these days. And I think that's the best way to, for this team to kind of move on, just to write it off as a bad day for Tua, a bad day for the D. Let's all move on and let's try and push for a playoff still. I don't really think there's much else that they can do. And I wouldn't necessarily suggest that this is a blueprint for beating this Dolphins team. That said, if Tua goes out next week and gets sacked another six times, well, then maybe it's a different story. Yeah. So the Denver D held up well and not for the first time this season. It's something that we've said on this show a few times over certain matchups but it's just the consistency isn't there and one week they're amazing and the other week they get walked all over the one thing that was nice to see again for Denver was some decent production from their running backs which we commented on last week and just said you know how do they get these two going and sure enough yeah you know what this was probably the deciding factor in the game really because Drew Locke he didn't really do much he threw for 270 yards and got intercepted didn't throw for a TD. The Miami rushing attack 
combined on 17 carries for 56 yards and average of 3.3, which is paltry. For Denver backs, 189 yards of 33 carries, a good average of 5.7, and they got two touchdowns from him. This rushing attack really was what was keeping the drives going. And I think, yeah, this was the factor, really, that was the decisive element in the Denver Broncos win. Yeah. So a bit of an upset then for the Dolphins and the Broncos, but no upset to be found in our next match, which is Chargers 34, Jets 28. No. With this game, I think the scoreline makes it seem a little bit closer than what it was. You know, there is a little bit here that the Chargers did let the Jets kind of get back into it. They gave up probably too much garbage time points. They were leading something like 31-13 at one point. And then so for the game to finish 34-28, I think that's maybe the main thing to take from this really. The Jets were never going to win, let's be honest. But the Chargers gave up too much in the fourth quarter. Yeah, absolutely. And it's that kind of performance that has seen them lose games where they came very close to winning. This is what's letting the Chargers stand because yet again, Herbert had an absolute stormer. Herbert had an absolute stormer. 366 yards, completed 37 of 49 attempts. I mean, 49 attempts for a rookie is a large number as well, but to hit on 37 of them, three touchdowns, zero interceptions, finished with a rating of 116.5. He had a very good day. Had the Chargers not hit on Herbert and had Herbert not been as NFL ready as what he clearly is, this season for the Chargers could have been really ugly. I mean, it's not a good season by any means. They sit on three and seven now, but had Herbert not put up the points that he's been putting up, they could easily be a 1-9, and 2-8 team at best. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that Herbert is in pole position now for Rookie of the Year? Yeah, I think he is, to be honest. He's put out some stunning performances. It's a real shame about Joe because he was breaking some even rookie records or on target to break yeah. them at least. But yeah, Herbert, unless he implodes, you'd like to think that he's probably got that in the bag. It's nice to see that he's connecting with Alan now. You know, they've really started to get a genuine connection going. This is the second game back to back. He targeted him 19 times. <laughs> yeah. And Alan caught 16 of those for 145 yards and a touchdown. I mean, that's impressive. Keenan Allen. I always feel that Keenan Allen seems to be an unfashionable wide receiver. When people are talking about the best wide receivers in the game, Allen's name doesn't get thrown out there as much as it should. People will always talk about Michael Thomas or talk about Devante Adams or talk about DeAndre Hopkins. People don't talk about Keenan Allen with the same frequency. Right now, going into game week 12, he's the most targeted wide receiver in the game. 112 targets, only started nine games. The most receptions of any wide receiver in the league, and he's way out in front here. He's had 81 receptions, second closest to him is Stefan Diggs with 73. Keenan Allen is a volume receiver. If you're going to make one criticism, he's fumbled the ball three times and he's fumbled it in some kind of important places. You take that away, though, and I think he's got to be in that conversation in the top five elite wide receivers in the league. Yeah. When do you think we'll see more of Perrine? Because it feels like he should be seeing more of an equal share of the touches. Gore is currently getting twice as many touches as Perrine, and... If they're not trying to win, which they're obviously not because they're tanking for Trevor, why not give the young guys some more opportunity? It's really strange. They're persisting with Frank Gore. And I've said it a few times now. I love Frank Gore. I love what he's done. He should be a first round Hall of Famer, but he's not efficient. He's very one dimensional. He's not a great catching back. Let Perrine have a go. Just let Perrine have a go. See what you've got there. 
I mean, what, he was a fourth round pick, was he? So it wasn't like they threw away a sixth or seventh round on him. He was a decent pick. Get him out of there. It seems like the perfect opportunity to be trotting him out when you don't necessarily need the wins. See what you've got there. Yeah. I mean, he had eight carries at the weekend, and I've not got the stats on his season, but I would imagine that's probably near to a season high. But, you know, Frank Gore still had 15. Both of them finished exactly 4.1 yards a carry. Both had a touchdown. Maybe we'll see this developing into more share for Perrine. Yeah, and that, that's why, to me, it seems mad that Gore's getting the level of share that he is. But yeah, there you go. I feel like I'm delaying because I don't really want to get to this next game. But Just pull the plaster off, Charles. Let's, let's talk about it. it. Packers 31, Colts 34. How did you see this one? It was entertaining and it was high scoring. So we at least got what we were promised in some respects. I think this game was absolutely littered with errors and from both sides. But it was ultimately errors that cost Green Bay the game. Silly things like a snap fumble, a fumbled kickoff return, a fumble on the opening possession of overtime and so many Green Bay offside penalties. It just felt like a game that Green Bay threw away more than it did a superior performance from the Colts. But, you know, the Colts had five straight scoring drives to finish the game. And defensively, Green Bay just need to be so much better than that if they have aspirations of going to the Super Bowl this season. Yeah, it feels like this was a bit of a missed opportunity really for the Packers. There's only one bye for the playoff teams this year. This loss puts the Saints in pole position for that. The Colts are a good team, so this was never a given or a gimme. But it's games like this that the Packers need to win to get that buy and make their playoff life a lot easier. You've said Colts are a good team, and you're absolutely right, because here's the other thing. They had nine offside penalties called against them and two TDs called back for holding. So when things aren't going the Colts' way, that's when you have to capitalise on that. But we made just as many mistakes as they did, if not more. And it's almost a little bit cliche for us when we're talking about the Packers now, but the quarterbacks were almost identical in their stat line. Rodgers, 27 of 38. Rivers, 24 of 36. Rodgers finished just over 300 yards. Rivers, just under 300 yards. They both had three touchdowns. Both had an interception. Both were sacked once. Rodgers' rating was 110.7. Rivers was 107.2. What was the difference maker? We had it two games ago. Green Bay could only muster up 66 yards on the ground. The Colts, 140 yards. It's this soft underbelly the Packers have where you can run on them. And we keep on saying that if they don't get this sorted out, teams that can run will do them. This is a blueprint to beat a team. Run against the Packers. Yeah, completely agree. I don't have anything more to add on that game. I'm not going to rub it in for you then, mate. So let's jump on because I don't want to stay on the next game. <laughs> Smart thinking. I'd really appreciate your view on this because a lot of my focus was taken up watching the Green Bay game at this point of the Sunday. And looking at the stats, you know, Cook rushed for 115 yards and a touchdown on 27 carries. So high volume, good output, got a touchdown. He even caught five catches for 45 yards. So in terms of game script, it kind of looks like it went exactly as I would expect it to go. The only difference being they didn't win. What was the issue there? Was it the Vikings D that crumbled spectacularly or did Dalton and the Dallas O just show up? I think you've got to put it on the Vikings D. 
And the stat that kind of jumps out, really, Zeke Elliott, 103 yards. This is the first game that Zeke has had all year where he surpassed 100 yards on the ground. The Vikings were giving up 5.8 yards for every rush attempt. They gave up three touchdowns to Andy Dalton. They only intercepted Andy Dalton once. The D did not perform at all. You can't put anything on Cousins or Kirk. Cousins had the highest pass rating of any quarterback in week 11. His pass rating was 140.1. That's not too far off perfect. I mean, he threw for 314 yards, three touchdowns. Didn't throw an interception. The offense was very, very good. All right, it was the Cowboys, but they played like they should do against the Cowboys. It was all on the D, mate. It was all on the D, and it's been the problem that the Vikings have had since week one. And it's a shame, really, because had the Vikings won this, they would have gone 5-5, five and five, and then I think you could have really have started talking about making a playoff push. All the kind of hope that the fans were getting, gone now. And what's more, they've not even really tanked. They're 4-6, and six, so they're still going to end up with a draft pick probably in the high 10s. Are you hopeful of next season in so much as on the defensive side, there've been quite a few injuries and quite a few people that that haven't been available. Do you feel that you've got the right pieces there? They're just, they're not all together at the same time and a renewed season might give you a much better looking team or do you have bigger concerns that there are bigger gaps there that need filling before next season? Well, I said from week one that losing Michael Pierce was a huge loss. He was supposed to be the heavy load in the D-line who was going to stop the run. And the Vikings have been a little bit soft on the run for the last few years. Their pass rush has been excellent with Griffin and Hunter on the edges. But through the middle, it's always been a little bit soft. So getting Michael Pierce in the middle was going to be huge. Now that he's sat out of football for a year, this is a guy who, don't get me wrong, he's not fit, as we'd say fit at the best of times, but he's been sat on the couch doing nothing, not even training for a year now. Is he going to come back and be the same football player? I don't know. Daniel Hunter? There are whispers and genuine concerns that Daniel Hunter might never play football again. This kind of neck injury that he's got, it's all being kept under wraps. It's all a bit hush-hush, but there's no even news coming out that he's had surgery and making a recovery from things. It's very concerning what's going on with Daniel Hunter. So if I was a full kind of optimist, you say, yeah, you've got Pierce, you've got Hunter, you've got Barr to come back. There's pieces on the D that should come back and make a difference. But I'm not ready to get excited about that yet because let's just see if and when these players do come back. Yeah, okay. And the biggest problem there is actually in the secondary. And it's still a team of rookies in the secondary. So realistically the Vikings have probably got to try to find some cap space to bring in a vet until we do something like that quarterbacks like Dalton will continue to get free touchdowns on this soft team okay let's go to a game that had plenty of action next then Chiefs 35 Raiders 31 this was probably the game of the week I'd say it was a great game it was a great game oh my goodness they nearly did it again it was unbelievable why is it that these games are always the late ones on a Sunday night when you've got work <laughs> so on a Monday true. morning? Because there was no way that I was going to stop watching this at halftime. Really, really good game. We've been talking about blueprints, Charles. It seems that the Raiders have maybe started to get the blueprint for beating the Chiefs. What do you think? I completely agree. I was thinking that both as I was watching the game and also while I was doing my research and recapping on it because they had two things going for them. Carl was on absolute fire again, as he was the first time they played. Yeah. 
you know, this is it. There's just something about this Kansas City D that gets Carr fired up in the morning. And I mean, he only missed three throws in the opening half and scored on practically every drive. They just did not have an answer for him. But the unfortunate thing is they left one minute 43 on the clock with a timeout, which is more than enough time for Patty Mahomes to land the killer blow. And in fact, he only needed one minute 15. Of yeah, that. yeah. Honestly, any other team, you'd feel confident that the Raiders had done enough. But it's what we've always said with the Chiefs. You need to always, where possible, keep the ball out of Mahomes' hands because he's that X factor. You know, the defense did not deliver for the Kansas City Chiefs. They let them down. Yeah, big time. Uh, Yeah, very let them down. But Mahomes bailed them out and Kelsey, who had an absolute day. Here's a trivia question for you, Charles. Which player had, had the best total quarterback rating in the game? Naturally, I would think Mahomes, but are you going to tell me it was Carr? I'm not going to tell you that it was Carr, but I'm not going to tell you it was Mahomes either. The, the player with the highest total quarterback rating was in fact Travis Kelsey. <laughs> ah, you've activated my trap card. <laughs> yeah, um, Kelsey with his one pass for four yards. Statistically... Uh, according to ESPN, that made him have the highest total quarterback <laughs> rating. Very good. Here's a question that I've got for you then. CEH actually scored twice and Bell yep. scored once. Does their performance change any thoughts that you have on either of those players or do you still see them largely as the same? No, look, you've got to give credit where credit's due. I've criticised CEH on the goal line and one of his TDs was basically from about five yards out, which is where I've been criticising his performances. That's probably the best game that I've seen him play. I know he had the huge game week one against the Texans where he put all the yardage up, but in terms of doing the complete things that a running back should do, and he is the interesting kicker. If you watch at how CEH was running, he was running very patiently. He was waiting for the holes to open up in front of him. He wasn't just, you know, head down, find a gap, charge for the gap. He was reading the game. And I think you can definitely see the influence that Bell has had on him. When the Le'Veon Bell deal got made, there were a lot of questions around what role Bell would have in this Chiefs team. And maybe for the Chiefs, they bought him for what he could do off the pitch, for how he could help mentor CEH for them. From all accounts, from everyone that's spoken about it, they've said that Bell came in the absolute most humble guy. Before Bell joined the team, Bell actually phoned up CEH and spoke to him on the phone and said, look, I hope you don't mind me coming here. I'm not trying to steal your gig. I just want to join a team and get a ring and I want to help you. He actually phoned him up and checked that it was all right that he joined the team. And from all accounts, ever since Bell's been on that team, he's just been looking for ways to make CEH better. And Bell is just all about getting a ring. So it's very, very possible that Bell is there acting as a mentor, doing his best for him. And if it's going to lead to CH, you know, finally scoring from a five-yard line, then great. Yeah. Aguilar looked good again, catching six passes for 88 yards and a touchdown. And He did drop one in the red zone, though. He's still dropping them. He did. But he has had a real transformation since being at the Raiders, wouldn't you say? I think the pressure of being in Philly is kind of gone through now. He was the punchline of the joke. Aguilar, it didn't matter what team you were a fan of, he was the guy who couldn't catch. There was memes about him. 
And when you're in Philly with the fans that Philly have got, and I, I, I don't want to cast too much shade on Philly fans here, but it's probably not the place to be if you're not performing. He's gone to Vegas. He's reinvented himself a little bit. He's still dropping stuff. But I think that the vibe in Vegas, the fans aren't going to come down and try to start fighting you. But the real star of this passing attack in terms of receivers, Darren Waller. Now, there's a guy who's undergone a transformation. Bearing in mind, the start of his career was marred by alcohol abuse. He's come back. He's reinvented himself. I'm going to go out there on a limb now and say with Kittle being injured, Darren Waller is the number two tight end in the league. I don't think that's even that controversial. I think Andrews is in that conversation. I think that Waller is a better player on all levels than Andrews. Waller is a better athlete. Waller is more of a threat. Waller runs better routes. I've got nothing against Andrews at all, but I'm putting Waller in tier one of tight ends now. Watching him over this season, I think he's up there now with Kittle and Kelsey. Okay. Let's move on then to our final game of last week. You called it, Joe. Rams 27, Bucks 24. I bat the Bucks to win big in this game, but you saw it as the upset that it was. What were your thoughts on this one? It's another theme we've had running through the show. It's just how inconsistent the NFC teams are. And once again, the Bucks play great one week and then they have an absolute muff game the next. Nothing seemed to get going for these Buccaneers. The rushing attack was terrible. Rushing attack was actually terrible on both teams. Brady got nothing going at all. The D wasn't punishing Goff as much as it should do. This is a night the Bucks want to forget. You can keep saying, let's just move on, a bad game. But they've had too many of these games now just to say, let's mark it down to a bad game and move on. There's a consistency problem with the Bucks. I'm not sure what the answer is because it's just really hard to say what the problem is when one week they look amazing and the next week they look like the Bears. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brady, king of the two-minute comeback, blew it big time. I was off the Bucks hype train for so long. Then they made me believe and I bought a ticket, Joe. And ever <laughs> since then, it's been a particularly bumpy ride. And, you know, that's for both sides of the ball. Offense and defense just were not clicking this game. I suppose being down Ali Marper at the guard position and losing left tackle Donovan Smith on the first play of the game are certainly not going to help Brady especially when you have pressure in the shape of Aaron Donald always looming. But I'm not sure that that completely accounts for all the offensive failings that were in this game. No. You look at players like Anton Winfield Jr. Through the first six, seven games, Anton Winfield Jr. was a sneaky bet for defensive rookie of the year. He was playing very, very well in the safety, interceptions in the red zone at key moments. He's turned into a liability the last few games. There's a confidence problem there. I think there's a coaching problem as well because some of the plays they're making, you've got to have questions about. Bucks are going to make playoffs because they'll probably still have a couple of really good games as well as a couple of really bad games. They sit at 7-4 right now. Saints will win the NFC South. But in the playoffs, who are they going to come up against first game? They could come up against a team like the Packers. They could come up against a team like the Seahawks. And it's just so hard to call, Charles. The whole of the NFC... Most of these teams can beat the other teams on a good day. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the questions that I have for you in this game was, do you think there was an element here of failed game planning? What shocked me the most was not Brady's inability to keep up, but Goff's ability to keep putting it out there. Yeah, Tampa Bay were seemingly playing soft coverage for most of that game. 
and it allowed Goff to just move the chains all night. And there was a part of me that wondered whether the Bucks came into this game and thought the Rams are a team that predominantly likes to run the ball. Let's absolutely shut them down on that level and dare Goff to do his worst because they didn't see the passing game from the Rams being that much of an offensive threat and that backfired do you think that happened or do you think it was just kind of failings in the general defense no no I think that's a real good point they did seem to focus on a run and they were successful in stopping a run 20 carries 37 yards that's an average of less than two yards a carry so the rushing attack from the Rams was non-existent on the other hand Goff 13 targets to cup 15 targets to wood between the two of those receivers they combined for 23 receptions 275 yards goff cup and woods absolutely lit up the tampa bay buccaneers to me that felt like what went down there because i look at the green bay game where they clearly identified the main threat as aaron Rodgers. the pass rush was oppressive and they completely took green bay out of the game this game, they were playing soft coverage. They were really easing off the quarterback. And it just meant that Goff could do whatever he wanted. And I wonder if they just planned that incorrectly and they misjudged Goff as a threat, which, in fairness, I've done plenty of times. Again, it's these games that are important games. Rams sit on 7-3 now. The Buccaneers sit on 7-4. There's a tiebreaker now that the Rams hold against the Buccaneers. Brady got a lot of flack for seemingly not shaking Jared Goff's hand at the end of the game. I think that shot was like bang on. Brady can always find a quarterback and always knows the quarterback when he wins. This was a huge game for Goff to go out there and win. Goff's not a trash talker. Goff hasn't been running his mouth off or saying anything about Brady. Goff's been nothing but respectful. I did feel that was a bit cheap. Yeah. And with a player like Brady, with the history that he's got, the media are always going to get on his back for that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Let's move on to our Predos then, Joe. Let's move on to Predos. Let's have you start us off, Charles. The first Thanksgiving game, Texans at the Lions. How you got this? Honestly, I have no idea which way this game is going to go. (laughs) But finger in the air. I'm actually going to say the Texans because the Lions D looked awful and Watson looked majorly impressive the week just gone. So I'm going to back the Texans to win by three. You know what? You're a man off my own heart. That's exactly how I've got it. I see this being a high scoring game though. I don't know what the over under is, but I'm probably going to bet the over on this. Texans with their weak run defense won't have to deal with DeAndre Swift, who's still going to be out. This has got shootout written all over it for me. So yeah, it should be an exciting game, half past five Thursday. Nice. Then we go on to Washington at Cowboys. <laughs> Despite them sticking 31 points up on the Vikings, I'm going to go Washington on this. I still think that the Cowboys are garbage. Washington, they were efficient enough against the Bengals, but I don't say it with, with any confidence. I'm going to say Washington by three. Yeah, I, <laughs> here we go. I feel almost exactly the same. I'm going Washington by seven. They can be quite oppressive from a defensive standpoint, and I'm not sure how Dalton and the Cowboys are going to match up against a defense that that brings a bit of attitude. So, yeah, I think Washington by a score. So I actually took Friday off work. I do it every year. I always take Thanksgiving Friday off of work so I can stay up for the Thanksgiving games and have a few beers and not worry about it the next day. So you can imagine my chagrin that the Raven-Steelers game has now been moved to Sunday. 
That is so annoying because yeah. in reality as well, it was one of the only good Thanksgiving games. Because who really wants to see <laughs> every other team that is playing has got a has got what three wins maximum. So <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's garbage teams playing for the rest of Thanksgiving. This was the marquee game. And yeah, so it's moved to Sunday, but Ravens at Steelers. I think given the Ravens' defensive issues and knowing how impressive the Steelers are, Jackson is still not refound his form. I think the Steelers are going to take this by seven points. I think that this could be a bit more of a statement kind of game. I think the first time these teams played each other, they were a little bit like boxers scared to throw a punch. Since that game, the Ravens have been going the wrong way. Momentum is going from them. I think the Steelers will want to go out there and absolutely bury the Ravens to show they're the real deal. So I'm going to say Steelers by 14. Okay, interesting. But let's see. Next game, Raiders at Falcons. I don't want to get hot takey, Charles. I don't want to get hot takey, but <laughs> having seen the Raiders play so good, it almost feels like, are they going to carry that into the next game? Are they going to play that good again? Do they need to against the Falcons is my question. Well, this is the thing, though. But then I thought back to myself and I was like, Joe, I've backed them in this Predo thing so many times and they've let me down so many times. So I'm just going to say Raiders by seven, mate. Cool. I'm going Raiders by 14. I think that the Falcons are really going to struggle defensively and I'm hoping that the Raiders can keep it up. Okay. Chargers against the Bills who are coming off a bye week. Yeah, I think this might be another game where the Chargers lose by more than seven. So I am going to say Bills by 10. I'm struggling with this one. I feel that Herbert is playing at a level which is near to elite. I think that the Bills the Bills are sitting where they are, but they're not that good a team. They're not a team who's going to go deep into the playoffs here. It would be a big surprise, but I'm going to say Chargers by a point. Oh, I, th- yeah, I just yeah, don't think yeah. the Chargers have the defense to stop the Bills scoring at will. I know what you're saying there, but I think Josh Allen... What I'm basically pre in is that Josh Allen is going to have one of those games where he can't hit broadside of a barn and he's throwing it all over the place and Herbert will continue to play well. Okay then, New York Giants at the Bengals. So the Bengals aren't even going with Ryan Finley this week, are they? Are they not? Who are they going with? They're going with Brandon Allen. Brandon Allen. I believe so. Don't really have any confidence in the Bengals without Joe Burrow. That's not to say I have very much confidence in the Giants either. Giants by three in a low-scoring affair. Yeah, I agree. I think it will be low-scoring. I think there's an upset here, though, weirdly, even without Joe Burrow. In fact, I think Joe Burrow not being there might, to some level, help the team a bit because they'll be doing really basic stuff. And I think just playing basic football is enough to beat the Giants. So I think the Bengals might sneak it and I'll I'll say Bengals by two. Now, a really interesting game, probably game of the week, really. Titans at the Colts. Both teams sit seven and three in the AFC South. Uh, you've got to think really that the team that wins this should go on and take the AFC South. Who you got? Yeah, it's a really important matchup. I think the Colts are a better team, so I'm backing the Colts. It's tough to say because Derek Henry can put up yards, but the Colts have an excellent run defense. I think the Colts might win this by 10. 
I hate to be boring and agree with you, but yeah, I think the Colts do win this. I don't think by 10, because I think that the Titans would do enough to keep it close. But I think that the Colts will take Henry out of the game. And by taking him out of the game, he'll probably still get 100 yards. But take him out so he's not the existential threat that he is for most teams. Colts by six. I don't think Henry will get 100 yards this game. He'll probably still get a lot of yards, though. He'll probably still get a lot of yards, whatever he does. Oh, but, uh, sure. Like, he's the main man there. But I think yeah. the Colts' run D is very impressive. Right, Browns at Jags, then. So the Jags are starting Mike Glennon this week, aren't they? Oh, poor Luton. What did he do to deserve this? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. What did he do to deserve this? Browns by 10. Yeah, I think Browns by 6 couple of field goals maybe something like that yeah yeah panthers at the vikings yeah it depends which vikings are going to show up i think this could be a very close game but i think i'll probably just err on the side of the panthers and say maybe again panthers by six I've got fears about this game, really, because you've got DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel who can absolutely burn the secondary in the Vikings. Uh, Panthers in a close one. Panthers by one. Nice. Okay, next game, Cardinals at the Patriots. Again, it's a weird one because the Cardinals have been a bit up and down. The Patriots have been a bit up and down. I think the Cardinals have enough. I think the Cardinals will probably win by 10. I just don't see enough attacking threat in the Patriots team to outscore this Cardinals team because I think that like, Kyler Murray will score. Yeah, well, man, I'm going to say Cardinals by 14. I think the only thing to watch out for is Harris and Newton could put up yards against the Cardinals because they were very weak against the run versus the Seahawks last week. That could be what keeps the game a little bit narrower, but I agree. They have limited options. Okay, then, in the final six o'clock game on Sunday, uh, Dolphins at Jets. Should we just say Dolphins by 14 and move on, despite them losing this week? Yeah, I'm happy with that. The Jets aren't winning any football games this year, are they? Shall no. we just save ourselves time in all the rest of our predos <laughs> yeah. and just give it 14 points to whoever Jets are playing? Yeah. Right, uh, first of a late game, Saints at Broncos. Uh, which Broncos are we going to get, Joe? I don't think it matters, Charles. Do you not? Uh, the Saints will have Taysom Hill sign again, but I think even if inverted commas good Broncos turn up like they did against the Dolphins, I still think that a Taysom Hill Saints will have too much for them. I, I genuinely do. Okay. I'm not convinced, but I also don't think we're going to get the best Broncos. <laughs> I think Saints by seven. Saints by 10. Next one, 49ers at the Rams. Well, look, Goff has now had two back-to-back games where he's performed now, so it's put everything I've said against him to shame I think I've got to start I mean it's the 49ers who I'm never convinced on week in and week out because of their injury so I'd say the Rams anyway but potentially maybe by as many as 14 now because I I think offensively the Rams are starting to show that they do have something there even if it is just Cooper Cup (laughs) with Mullin starting at quarterback and you know the Rams D-line being as good as it is still uh, I can't see past the Rams I think it's going to be closer but Rams by three cool Here's a game, Chiefs and Bucks. Yeah, this is a game. It would be more exciting had the Bucks won going into this. Yeah, definitely. And then this would probably be the game of a week. It's still really hard to call because if good Bucks come out, like we have seen them come out a few times this year, they've got the beating of this Chiefs team. The Raiders have started to lay a blueprint. But there's just not enough there. If you're looking at consistency, 
consistency week in, week out. The Chiefs are playing at a high level. The Bucks are playing at a high level 50% of the time. You've got to do the math there then and say, you know, it's more likely the Chiefs will win. Chiefs by six. I completely agree with everything you've said, but I'm a gambling man. So I'm going to gamble on that 50% Bucks showing up. And I am going to say Bucks by seven. Let's talk about the Bears at Lambeau Field. I don't see Packers losing two in a row. I think had the Packers won last week, this would be more of a kind of trap game for them. I think that they're going to be just honed and focused on winning this game. They're not going to let anything happen in terms of the amount of mistakes that happened last time. This Bears team is still absolutely pants. The Packers might even put a score up here. Why not? Packers by 17. Okay, I see it a little bit differently. I think that luckily the Bears don't have a run game, so they can't hurt us too badly there. No, We've seen from a quarterback perspective, they struggle from time to time, where they're really strong as their defence. I think it might be a relatively low or middling kind of scoring affair, but I think it might just be one of those games that the Packers just sort of sneak. So I'm going to say Packers by three. And the final game, Monday night, Seahawks at the Eagles. Logic would dictate that the Seahawks are the runaway winners here. I've just got a little bit of a feeling that maybe Wentz and the Eagles sort of turn it around a touch. Not to the degree where they beat the Seahawks, but we've seen them click offensively in the air game before, and we know that can hurt the Seahawks. I still think Seahawks have enough to win, but maybe by only a score seven points it's really funny you say that I think that we're agreeing on too many things this week but I can see Carson Wentz kind of putting in one of those performances that the apologists for his play will jump on and say oh but did you see him play against Seahawks when he threw for three touchdowns and had 350 yards I can see him putting in one of those performances this week he's due one he's got to hit one at least once a season so yeah, I can see it not being the landslide that you might think with a team that's pretty decent on offense like the Seahawks playing a team that's pretty awful everywhere like the Eagles. And again, I agree with you. I think the Seahawks will still win though. So I'm going to say Seahawks by seven. All right then, Joe. Well, I kind of feel like every week I say, oh, it's been a week with plenty of upsets, but this week really There were a lot have. of upsets. There <laughs> were a lot of upsets. There really were. This was the accumulator breaker week. So let's hope for a little bit more predictability this upcoming week. I mean, let's it's always not, nice for a few upsets, not, but... Yeah, as long as it's not your team, it's fun seeing other teams that people think are good losing. So um, <laughs> so let's see some more upsets. Let's let's be wrong. Misery loves company, Joe. There we go. <laughs> Until next week, speak to you then. Speak to you then.